Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 45 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes for people who love history and a good story, but have neither the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. Before we get into it this week, this episode is sponsored by Catholic Balm Co., the very best in beard balms, beard oils, lotion bars, and more. I will personally use Catholic Balm Co.'s beard balms as long as there's hair on my face, as there has been for the better part of the last four or five years. Uh, Really great stuff. So check out out all the great handmade products they have over at catholicbalm.co. That's catholicbalm.co. Order some for you and a friend. And then be sure, of course, to enter the word Pope, P-O-P-E, at checkout. Fans of the Popecast get 10% off their entire order with that promo code. So once again, that's catholicbalm.co and the word Pope at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Balm Co. for sponsoring this episode. Today we have a Pope who found himself having to deal with an emperor demanding that Christian images and statues be smashed to bits. And he was having none of it. This week on the Popecast, it's the 88th successor of St. Peter, the Pope who fought the destruction of statues, Pope St. Gregory II. St. Gregory II was born to Roman parents, Marcellus and Onesta, in the year 669. As a member of a noble family, he was close to the inner workings of the church from a young age, and it wasn't long after coming of age that he gained an interest in serving at the papal court. Pope St. Sergius I was the first of several popes to notice Gregory's talents, ordaining him as a subdeacon and assigning him the task of distributing alms to the poor and needy around Rome at just 18 years old. Gregory would serve in that role for a little over a decade, apparently until Sergius' death in 701, after which he was made a deacon and put in charge of the Vatican Library. In 708, Pope Constantine ascended to the throne. As a quick side note, see episode 24 of the Popecast, entitled The Brothers Pope, for more on Constantine and Sicinius, his brother and papal predecessor. It should go without saying, of course, but uh, this isn't the Constantine. That one lived 400 years prior. At any rate, Pope Constantine elevated Gregory even further, making him his papal secretary and bringing him along on a trip to Constantinople to smooth over the controversy that had arisen out of the Quinisext Council years earlier. That was a a regional synod which Sergius I had refused to sign due to it being more or less a doctrinal and disciplinary power grab by the Emperor Justinian II. At the meeting, as the Catholic Encyclopedia notes, quote, The Pope's trust was not misplaced. The deacon Gregory, by his admirable answers, solved every difficulty raised by the emperor. As a quick bit of trivia, that trip in the year 711, which Gregory was witness to, would be the last papal visit to Constantinople until Pope St. Paul VI visited there in 1967, over 1,250 years later. Constantine would die on April 9th, 715, and Gregory II would be elected a little more than a month hence, beginning his 16-year pontificate on May 19th, 715, as the 89th Bishop of Rome. Gregory had to hit the ground running, but he was more than up to the task. The first order of business was starting repairs on the crumbling 500-year-old Aurelian walls, which would take several years to fix. It was apparently halted the next fall when the Tiber flooded Rome, so that I'm sure was fun to deal with. Especially given that also in Gregory's first year, a letter arrived from the Patriarch of Constantinople, John VI, 
trying to justify his belief in monothelitism. Of course, that's the heresy, as some might remember, that Christ had a divine and human nature, but just one will. Its condemnation was still relatively fresh, having been squished in 681, just about 30 years prior at the Third Council of Constantinople. Of course, as a side note, Christ had a divine and human will as well. But a churchman will always be tempted, of course, to pander to his secular ruler, and so John apparently wanted sympathy from the Pope on that front. I'm sure Gregory was having none of that, because we don't hear anything further about that for the remainder of Gregory's life. Next on the docket was the growing mission of the church to evangelize Germany, which until that point in history was still largely pagan territory. Gregory started by assigning an archbishop to Bavaria, but more famously, in 718, he would send the great St. Boniface into the breach after being approached by the Anglo-Saxon missionary that very year. He made Boniface a bishop four years later in 722 after the latter had returned to Rome for uh, an update and the pair continued to correspond regularly, at least by 8th century standards regularly, for the better part of the next decade. In fact, letters still exist between Boniface and Gregory, including the letter commissioning Boniface on his new adventure, in which Gregory wrote, quote, your holy purpose, as it has been explained to us and your well-tried faith, lead us to make use of your services in spreading the gospel, which by the grace of God has been committed to our care, end quote. Note here, of course, he's using the royal we to refer to himself, but in the early 8th century, still 800 years before the Protestant Reformation, we have the head of the Roman Catholic Church, asserting guardianship over the deposit of faith by virtue of his office as Pope, and not really having to explain that much. It was kind of taken as a bygone conclusion, right? Always interesting to note that. On the Rome front, Gregory was always busy with various items, restoring monasteries and churches, holding a synod to deal with illegitimate marriages, and playing referee with patriarchs fighting with each other, particularly those who were in the pocket of the Lombard king Lutbrand, who ruled over much of Italy in those days. In particular, Gregory turned his parents' estate at one point into a monastery after the death of his mother, and in another case, he oversaw the building of the famous Abbey of Monte Cassino, so we have Gregory to thank for that. In addition, Gregory instituted new disciplines when it came to various feast days, including adding fasting during Thursdays in Lent. So you might be wondering, wait, I thought it was Fridays in Lent. Apparently up to that point, the faithful were to fast on all other days of the week during that particular season, except Thursday, lest they be confused with the pagans who fasted on Thursdays as part of their worship of the Roman god Jupiter. Seems like one of those things that was, quote-unquote, just the way we always did it, right? Until Gregory came along, was restoring lots of other things, and said, well, it doesn't really matter what anybody else says. We're not pagan, so that's dumb. We're fasting on Thursdays too now. Anyways, it was around the halfway point of Gregory's papacy that things really began to get interesting. The Byzantine emperor, Leo III, had been battling invading Muslim armies for some time and was slowly watching his empire shrink all around him. The western and eastern parts of the church had already historically been like ships in the night a lot of times. Not quite on the same wavelength, right? But Leo's actions over the next several years would very nearly sever the relationship entirely. It all started with Leo trying to impose heavy taxes on papal lands in Italy around 722, which made it tough for Pope Gregory to locally source food for uh, the Roman people. So this not only, of course, enraged the always mob-ready Romans, but also led Gregory to encourage the booting of Rome's governor, the emperor's ambassador, from the city altogether. 
This led to a plot to murder the Pope in 725 by other agents of the Emperor, but once the conspiracy was uncovered, thankfully the four men responsible were caught uh, and not so thankfully put to death. Some actually say that the Emperor put out the hit himself, but we'll never know for certain. The next year, however, was the icing on the cake. In 726, perhaps to pander to the Muslim invaders, and in some sense because he believed his misfortune to be due to God's anger at Catholics having become idolaters at some point, Leo III banned images altogether. No more Jesus, no more Mary, no more saints. All images were to be destroyed and replaced with a generic cross, the symbol apparently that Constantine was shown before he won his battle and instituted Christianity as the official religion of the empire. I suppose... Leo's fear, in any case, is understandable, and historian Eamon Duffy notes that he more or less bowed to social pressure. After a massive volcanic eruption put a nice, symbolic flourish on the whole God's punishing us idea, Duffy writes that, quote, Leo's edict was the product of profound social panic, several generations of theological reflection by bishops and theologians, and the cumulative impact of controversy about the person and natures of Christ, end quote. Duffy goes on and says, quote, Whatever its causes, however, the emperor's attack on images and the resulting wave of image-breaking, or iconoclasm, fell like a thunderbolt in the West, end quote. Sound familiar? Though technically the emperor didn't try to demand the destruction of images so much in the West as much as he did in the East, Gregory still acted quickly in resoundingly condemning Leo's actions, basically giving him the 8th century equivalent of stay in your lane, bro, by telling him that emperors have no business interfering in theological matters. Of course, uprisings ensued on both sides. The Romans apparently lynched the exarch of Ravenna, the emperor's regional lord for trying to enforce the edict, and Gregory was again the target of a murder plot that thankfully again was quashed. Unfortunately, this crisis would outlive Gregory II, despite his best efforts. As is the case with many large crises in the Catholic Church that they've faced over the centuries, things don't often spring up and resolve themselves even in a couple of decades, let alone a couple of years. So it would be up to Pope St. Gregory III, the next pope, to take up the mantle and officially condemn iconoclasm once and for all. Pope Gregory II died on February 11th, 731. He was likely 61 years old. Gregory was venerated as a saint not long afterward, and his feast day is still celebrated on that same date of his death, February 11th. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, but sadly his remains have since been lost to history. As for Gregory II's legacy, it's certainly hard to choose. Germany, in large part, became a a Catholic nation because of Gregory's priorities, right? And it was equally the case for the strengthening of Britain and Ireland's Catholic roots as well. Gregory also echoed predecessors like Leo the Great in asserting the primacy of the papacy and showing its strength by always emphasizing and honoring his role as keeper of the same keys given to St. Peter by Jesus Christ. But I think more than both of those, Gregory II's witness to the truth of images glorifying God and enriching the spiritual life of Christians is his greatest and most unique legacy. And it's here that we'll end this episode with a quote from the man himself. When Leo III sent down his edict from on high, Gregory didn't hold back in his responses in in what um, some have called the most defiant response by a pope, the the strongest response, um, at least to that date in history, uh, when writing back to an emperor. So here's an excerpt from one letter in particular, quote, you say, we worship stones and walls and boards, but it is not so, O emperor, 
but they serve us for remembrance and encouragement, lifting our slow spirits upwards by those whose names the pictures bear and whose representatives they are. And we worship them not as gods, as you maintain. God forbid. Even the little children mock at you. Go into one of their schools, say that you are the enemy of images, and straight away they will throw their little tablets at your head. And what you have failed to learn from the wise, you may pick up from the foolish. In virtue of the power which has come down to us from St. Peter, the prince of the apostles, we might inflict a punishment upon you, but since you have invoked one on yourself, have that, you and the counselors you have chosen. Though you have so excellent a high priest, our brother, Patriarch Germanus, whom you ought to have taken into your councils as father and teacher, the dogmas of the church are not a matter for the emperor, but for the bishops." End quote. Well, thank you, as always, for listening. If you're not already and you believe in the mission of what we're doing here at the Popecast, would you please uh, support and join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thepopecast. This show is, of course, primarily about bringing these papal bios out of out of the dusty and boring history books, but hopefully they can also serve as a reminder that the insanity in our world, which grows apparently increasingly more every day, it would seem, is nothing new, right? When we look back over 2,000 years of history, Leaders can be corrupt, no matter what camp they're in. Mobs will do crazy things. Destroying cultural images without critical thought can only lead to more destruction and division. But most importantly, saints are real, right? That's maybe one of my favorite things about creating these episodes, is thinking about how guys like Gregory II aren't just a face on a page in a history book. They were real, living, breathing, laughing, crying human beings who just lived a really, really long time ago. We're all in the same boat, right? As Chesterton once said, and we're all seasick. So once again, if you'd be up for supporting this mission to keep the Popecast churning out new episodes, covering our hosting costs, and then hopefully increasing our bandwidth over time to produce different bonus items for patrons and, and other fun things, please consider joining us at patreon.com slash thepopecast. That's patreon.com slash thepopecast. And then lastly, of course, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast over at iTunes. Uh, hit share on your podcast, your Spotify app, whatever you're listening to this with, and text this episode to a friend if you liked it. And then be sure to give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook in the meantime, all at the Popecast. So as we close this episode, we pray for the intercession of Pope St. Gregory II, that our Lord might grant us peace, both in our own hearts, in our relationships, and in our world. Until next time.